I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey. How are you? Good. Sorry I couldn't talk more last night. Thanks for calling me back. I'm here again talking about this shit, man. It's like after fucking 30 some odd years, you would think that like you got you to get over it. Yeah. But apparently not. I fucking saying to myself, why the fuck did you do this? You're a fucking asshole. What the fuck were you thinking? But, I mean, Zach, I mean, literally, the story should be told. My name is Zach Levitt, and a former New York City cop has called me to talk. It's a fucking long story, how we got involved in this (laughs) I started out with 3609 Broadway. Went into a fucking building and I saw a whole whole bunch of cash and I go, am I really going to go here? And I did. I fucking caught a fucking drug dealer and please let me go, please let me go. Yeah, I'm going to let you go. Get the fuck out of here. I'm going to keep the cash and go back on fucking patrol. And then it went real, real fucking bad after that. I would drive to the precinct, go downstairs and suit up in my uniform. And then you come upstairs and you fucking, you stand in the muster room and you're going out on patrol. What are we gonna do tonight? Well, we're gonna rob some drug dealers. And uh, I know how to do it. And I know how to do it really well. I was fucking proud of it. I would just fucking knock your door down and steal your money. And uh, it was like fucking crazy. 
We did our job. We did our job. But we fucking went the wrong way. The reason this whole fucking case went down, right? I I was talking to a cop and he goes, listen to me. He's wearing a fucking wire. I said, oh shit, shit. I'm telling you, this is a fucking story. As I had this conversation, I was trying to understand how one police officer could become so corrupt that he was robbing drug dealers in the same neighborhood that he was sworn to protect. But the most chilling thing was that the dirty cop I was speaking to was one of dozens just like him. And all of them worked inside just one NYPD precinct at the same time. This is the inside story of the biggest police corruption scandal in New York City history. It's just, I, t- I, I took off with it, and I shouldn't have done what I did, but I did. I'm not a bad guy, man. I made a mistake, and I fucking went down a fucking wrong path, and I'm not a bad guy. But... It was something that I, 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 I can't explain, and I, I loved, I loved being that dirty motherfucker. Dangerous times in New York City. A dozen cops so far accused of shaking down drug dealers, and officials say this is just the beginning. A long investigation into the New York City Police Department has uncovered a network of corruption that extends deep within its ranks. Selling drugs, stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars, and protecting drug dealers instead of the public. We Americans have an endless fascination with police stories. Well, there's a police story being told here in New York that is so shocking, you couldn't make it up. I'm Zach Levitt, and welcome to the set. The fucked up world of a fucked up department. Episode one, The Wild Kingdom. It was Christmas Eve, and I was working with George Nova and the sergeant. And we were working 6 p.m. Christmas Eve to 2 o'clock in the morning, Christmas morning. We were riding around in an unmarked car. If one of us made an arrest, we would have to go to court the next day to process the arrest on Christmas Day. The plan was not to make an arrest unless we really had to. We weren't really going to go out looking for anything. It was, you know, it was Christmas. Everybody wanted to be home with their families and their loved ones. It's early Christmas morning, 1990. New York City's most violent year ever. NYPD officer Barry Brown, 24 years old, black, six foot three and more than 200 pounds, is sitting in the back seat of an unmarked police car. Brown's partner is officer George Nova, 
Nova's Dominican, and also 24. He drives while their sergeant rides shotgun. They're patrolling West Harlem, the 30th precinct. At less than one square mile, the 3-0 is one of the city's smallest precincts. Also, one of its most dangerous. The nickname of the 3-0 is a wild kingdom because it was a wild place because of the drugs, because of the violence. It had drug dealers selling vials of crack to drug dealers selling kilos. You had robberies, you had stolen cars, you had gangs. Every block was a little bit different than the block before it, and maybe every block was a little bit worse. It was a really crazy place. So we're driving around, and it's about 1.30 in the morning. We drive past 87 Hamilton. There's a lot of people on the street. It's a really bad drug building, even at 1.30 in the morning on Christmas Eve. People are coming out. There's a guy who sees me. He turns around. He starts running. I chase him through the lobby to the back of the building. I throw him up against the wall underneath the staircase. Pat him down. He doesn't have a gun, but there's a big bulge or something inside his coat. And we're standing underneath the staircase there that leads to a, an alleyway out the back of the building. The door is open. Cold breeze is blowing in on us. The sergeant pats the guy down. He pulls out, you know, the soft bulge, which was about a pound of cocaine. And the subject that we stopped goes, oh, my God, it's Christmas Eve. Jesus was born on Christmas. You got to give me a break. Please let me go. Let me go. And before I knew it, the sergeant takes a pound of coke and he screamed, Merry Christmas, motherfucker. And he ripped the bag open. The problem was we were standing right next to the door and the wind blew and all the cocaine came flying back on the four of us. We were covered in cocaine. The subject screams, thank God, there's a Jesus, there's a Jesus. And he booked ass out of the building. And the three of us stood there laughing, covered in cocaine. We drove down by Riverside Drive and tried to clean all the cocaine off of us before we went home. Barry Brown doesn't have far to go. He lives right there on Riverside Drive with his older brother, who's also a cop, and his parents in the same three-bedroom apartment he was raised in. I grew up in Harlem, right on the Harlem-Washington Heights border on Riverside Drive. My father had a tremendous work ethic. He was an electrical engineer, and he was working out in Long Island most of the time, so he would get up early in the morning and put on a suit and tie, and he would leave the house 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and he would come home late in the evening, but he always had time for us when he got home. He was a huge influence on my life. He was a, a big man, six foot five, close to 300 pounds. He loved the outdoors. He loved fishing. He was very strict, but very, very fair, honest, hardworking guy who just wanted the best for his family. My mother really took care of us, made sure that we did our homework, made sure that we were dressed properly. 
She kept a close eye on us, and she was just a wonderful mother to grow up with. Brown's building is just two blocks outside the 30th precinct, but it's in a much quieter and safer area, and it overlooks the Hudson River. So it feels like a totally different neighborhood. At a very early age, I was told to stay near the building, stay in front of the building, don't go past right around the corner on Riverside Drive, be very careful, don't go up to Broadway, it could be very dangerous. Stay on Riverside Drive, stay right near the building. I remember we were playing football around the corner on like Lower Riverside Drive. A bunch of kids were playing from like my block and, and another block against each other. I actually had gotten there after the game had started and I wasn't playing. I was standing there with a couple of other kids just basically sitting on a parked car. And I turned around and there was a gang just walking down the street. There must have been 30 young, you know, male Hispanic guys and they surrounded us. And they were asking us what gang we were from. We're like, oh, we're not part of a game. We're just here playing football. And the guy that I was with, they got in his face and he just punched one of the gang members right in the face. Boom, he hit him. And they just pounced on him. And I ran and a couple of them chased me, but I got away, I ran all the way home. You know, I later found out that he got stabbed. It was terrible. And he was really upset with me, felt that I left him there. It just really broke me up and hurt me. I was devastated by it. But there was probably 30 guys and it was really just the two of us. And all these really tough guys that were playing football, they all ran and there was nothing I could do. It was a horrible experience. It's something that still haunts me to this day. And I really wanted to just do something about it to help, to prevent things from happening and to do the right thing for the neighborhood. The community did not trust the police. And my friends thought I was crazy to become a police officer. And they were questioning why I would want to do that when I could do so many other things. But it was just something that was just in my heart. When I decided to become a cop, my father told me there's gonna be a lot of temptations out there and you have to make sure that you do the right thing. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. 
and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. It's on the airwaves, it's in the air, it's in print, and it's on the covers of the magazines. The sense that the biggest city in America, its financial, media, artistic, and cultural center, is on the ropes. On the streets of New York, it's called crack, and the deals go down quickly. This form of cocaine comes concentrated. It is smoke. It's probably the case that at that time, I was the human being that had walked more street drug markets in the United States than anybody else. Having been in many of these markets, I couldn't believe what I saw in the 30th. David Kennedy is a criminal justice professor and the director of the National Network for Safe Communities at John Jay College in New York. There was nothing in almost 10 years of walking American crack markets that prepared me for what was going on there. Most street drug markets are at most a couple of square blocks. This was covering the entire precinct. Entire New York City apartment buildings completely taken over by the crack trade. Every single unit in these buildings were a stash house or a cookhouse or a selling location. There were entire drug networks in the tri-state area in New Jersey and surrounds whose only connect was that they would drive into Harlem and Washington Heights and buy kilos of powder cocaine on the street without getting out of their car. There was nothing else like this in the country. The pharmacology of crack didn't kill a lot of people. The body count that came with crack was driven by gun violence. What tore the neighborhoods apart was the violence and the disorder and the chaos that was driven by the markets and the loss of public space and the groups of young men with guns. The sex trade invariably follows the drugs. The Johns follow the sex trade. Local stores stop selling what you want and start selling glass pipes and steel wool and baking soda. If you haven't been in one of these markets, you can't imagine how bad it is. When the crackheads used to go crazy and rob people, all we did was stay up all night and snatch them up. You'll know not to come to my neighborhood again with that bullshit. This is Tom Bird. Bird grew up in the very same building as Barry Brown. They were friends. But his experience was a lot different than Brown's. I got shot through the leg. Went right here. Didn't go directly through. Just really almost a little bit more than a grace. But to me, when that shit happened and my drilling is running, I thought I was shot for real and my leg was falling off. I was like, ah, like a, the artery. I almost fainted. It burns. It's a, it's a searing, burning feeling. It's different than when you get stabbed. It was weird. I didn't feel it when I got stabbed nine times. 
I didn't feel it until he pulled the last one out of my neck. Then I felt it because I felt like a suction. But when you get shot, it's a different story. It's so fast. Try not to get shot or stabbed, everybody, please. <laughs> Bird's mother was an executive at a textile company, and his stepfather owned a butcher shop downtown. If you had your mother and father, especially there, you're supposed to make it out of there, even if your parents were assholes. When Bird was 10 years old, he was in the kitchen with his mother when his stepfather walked in, holding a large glass vase. I see him walking through the kitchen with the vase. Nobody's thinking he's going to do anything. Smashes it over her head. Bird's mother spent two months in a coma before she died. After, Bird had to continue living with his stepfather. Barry Brown and his family tried to help out where they could. I had so much anger in me. Barry would come around and try to, you know, hey, Tom, come, you know, come hang out or whatever. Come, come eat dinner, you know, spend the night, take me on fishing trips, you know, certain things. But I also had my other life. See, by then I was already out in the street. I remember when they first made crack. They did it in our neighborhood. And we had a lot of maniacs. They were dangerous, and a lot of them were murderers. They were throwing crackheads off the roof. This was back in the days where, if you got into beef, a motherfucker would call somebody from DR to come up and kill you, shoot you in the head and be on the plane. An hour later, go back to DR for about $200. That easy. Between 7th and 8th Avenue on 143rd. Horrible block. It used to be Murder Central. You walk through that block and nobody know you're going to get shot. See, here's the thing. You have people who, they had no chance. Especially those that migrated over here. There were no opportunities. You got into the game back then. Yo, you, you had no choice. But if you move in coke, you making money hand over foot, baby. The community had been completely abandoned. They were literally under siege. And a lot of what the cops heard from members of the public was, do something. And then I would go to the precinct captains and say to them, you know, it's your responsibility to police this area. What are you doing about the drug market? And they would do what I came to think of as the how I spent my summer vacation policy conversation. There would be a litany of here's what we're doing. And then I would say to them, and is it working? And they look at me like I was a complete moron and say, of course it's not working. It's not making any difference. Everybody involved in this from the frontline folks right up to the command staff, went to work every day knowing that what they were doing was failing and had no chance of succeeding. And nobody stopped and stepped back and said, what should we do about this? And the people who suffered the most from that were concentrated in very particular places, always already distressed communities of color. 
The people who suffered the next most were the officers that NYPD sent into those places without consideration, without backup, without planning, without strategy, and just left them to flail. My team, we used to cover the 3-0, and we used to buy and bus up and down there on Broadway, St. Nick, Amsterdam Avenue. Sly Francis was an undercover detective with the Manhattan North Narcotics Task Force. Sly and his team would buy drugs to make arrests, which meant that sometimes he'd go into a drug spot, never knowing for sure if he'd come out. I meet a guy on the corner of 139th Street and Broadway. Yo, what you looking for? Yo, man, looking for some coke. Oh, yeah, yeah, come follow me. I follow him to 610 West 139th Street. He goes down to basement level. It's a tailor shop. Tells me, go into the tailor shop. Another guy follows him behind me. And they take me to the back of the shop. There's another dude inside a room back there. He said, what you want? I said, yo, I'm looking for some coke. You know, my girl likes some coke. So the guy takes out some cocaine, lays out a line. He says, how I know you're not a cop? I said, I'm not a cop. I'm buying this to my girl. He said, yeah, but take this line. The other dude behind me puts a gun to the back of my head. Now, that's at the time your sphincter muscles in your ass closes right up. Well, I snorted that whole plate up. They sold me the coke. I get outside. My team sees me outside. I'm fucked up on this shit. They grab me, take me to Columbia Press Hospital, and the doctor checks me out and said, what happened? I say, hey, I had snorts of what I think is cocaine. He tells me, enjoy the high. <laughs> Drugs were everywhere. Drugs were everywhere. The 3 old precinct, you got to understand at the time, the money on the street was phenomenal. The temptation is there. The bad guys don't care if you take it, as long as you let them go. What drug dealer is going to go into a precinct and says, oh yeah, Detective so-and-so stole $50,000 from me that I made on the street selling drugs? They ain't not going to do it. But one thing they will do, they'll pass your name around the whole neighborhood and all the bad guys know exactly who you are. Because you're one of them now. And the minute they can screw your ass, they're gonna screw you to the cross. Because everybody wants to have that get out of jail card, okay? When you bring this bad guy in, he's gonna be debriefed by some detective. The arresting officer gonna tell him, what can you give me? Can you give me something that's useful for you that's gonna help your case? And he'll tell you, Oh, I know this cop out there selling drugs. Or I know this cop out there stealing money. That's his get out of jail free card right there.
Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Graduating class, attend, hut! After I graduated from the academy, I wanted to go to the 34th precinct, but I, they wouldn't allow you to work in the same precinct that you lived in. So I asked to go to the 3-0, which was only, literally started two blocks away from my house. It's January of 1988, when Barry Brown, just 21 years old, begins working in the neighborhood he grew up in. Those streets and avenues that his parents kept him away from are now his office. To get out there into the precinct and see all the things that were going on block by block, it was so much different from how I had grown up on Riverside Drive, even though it was just literally a few blocks away. To see the conditions of some of the apartments, to see how people were living and the things that were going on. I mean, there were sometimes on certain corners on Amsterdam Avenue, like 147th, 148th Street, there would literally be 25, 30, 40 on a good Friday night, 50 people in line to buy crack. I remember one time, there was a car that we were trying to pull over. We thought it was stolen, and when we tried to stop it, it turned out it was stolen. And the driver took off, and we started chasing him through the streets. He crashed on like 153rd Street. We caught him there, and the guy was like, Hey, Barry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, man. I shouldn't have ran. I look up, and it was this guy I went to high school with. And you know, he was all strung out on drugs, and he had stolen a car, and I was like, oh, man. We just cuffed him out and brought him back to the precinct. But I went to high school with a guy. It was pretty crazy. When I first got there, there was just a lot of talk about, this isn't the academy, kid. You know, forget everything you learned in academy. This is the real world. And, you know, some of the early things and, and first things that I remember was like, hey, don't trust the guys on the midnights. Be careful of the midnights. But every six weeks, you had to work a midnight shift. I remember just riding around on the midnights and responding to job after job after job because the other sectors weren't answering the calls. And being a rookie, it was kind of fun to get to answer so many calls in different parts of the precinct. But it was kind of like, where is everybody? And I remember driving past certain blocks and there'd be a patrol car parked there. And I'm like, that's kind of weird. There was no call that block. On one of his midnight rotations, Brown responds to a radio call of shots fired at an apartment on 140th Street. When he gets there, several of the steady midnight officers are already inside. They've arrested four people and now they're searching the apartment. Brown joins them, and he spots a plastic bag hidden behind a chair. I picked it up, and it was filled with money. It had, like, three big wads of money. One of the guys from the midnight said, Hey, what'd you get there, kid? What'd you find? 
So I showed him the bag and I, you know, I turned my back. I was still looking around and when I turned back around, he handed me the bag back. And when I looked inside, there was only two bundles of money in there. And he was stuffing something in his pocket. I was like, this guy just stole money out of the bag. He absolutely took one of the three sacks of money out of the bag and put it in his pocket. And you could clearly, you know, see it bulging there. The money was gone. It was in his pocket. I didn't confront him. I was just blown away. I couldn't believe it. Everything Barry Brown has heard about the Midnight Crew suddenly makes sense. Some of them park their squad cars outside the heavy drug buildings, and they sit and wait. When they spot someone leaving the building with a bag and get into a car, they pull it over. And if they find drugs or money, they take it. Or they just wait for the inevitable 911 call from someone inside. And since they're already on the scene, they can be the first to respond and take whatever they can before any other cops get there. There was an officer who started working in our squad and we worked together off and on, talked about maybe even becoming partners one day. He was a good guy, young guy. I think he had just gotten married. And I know he was having a lot of financial troubles and stuff. And then he told me that uh, he was going to transfer to the Midnights because he needed to make more money. And I was like, hey, you know, there's lots of rumors of, of things going on at Midnights. I don't know if you should do that. And I don't know if that's a good move. And he was like, oh, you know, I need the money. Brown's friend makes the switch to Steady Midnights. And then he comes back a little later with an offer. He was like, we were wondering if you were interested. And I was like, interested? He was like, yeah, we're hitting drug spots. We're stealing the drugs and the guns. We're taking the guns and throwing the guns in the Hudson River. We're stashing the drugs and we're coming back and getting them later on and then selling them to friendly drug dealers. He says, you live in a 3-4 and you keep your car in a garage there and you're building in a 3-4. All we want is the keys to your car. And when something happens on a midnight, we'll take the guns and drugs, we'll put them in the trunk of your car, and then we'll get them out later on after we get off work and, you know, we'll pay you. You don't have to do anything. It was really sad and disappointing to see that this guy was so excited about becoming a police officer and, and, and doing the right thing and becoming a good cop in the beginning and it made some, some great arrests. is now robbing drug dealers with cops and then asking if they could put some of the stuff in my car. I was like, there's no way. What are you doing? He was like, hey, I really need the money. I've got a lot of bills. I got a lot of debt. These guys have been doing this for a long time. They've got a, you know, it's like they got a great system. They're getting information from other drug dealers on where spots are or what cars are hot. We're hitting the cars. There's a lot of cash. We're making a lot of money. I remember him telling me stories about Vargas and that he had a, a custom Corvette built for him from Chevy that a lot of guys were paying off all kinds of debt, buying houses, buying sports cars, muscle cars. He just said that it was just unbelievable the amount of cash they were getting and how much it helped them. And then he told me that uh, 
At first, they were stealing guns and throwing them in the Hudson River because they didn't want to hear of a, a cop getting shot with one of those guns. But then he was like, you know, they're going to get a gun from somebody else. It's not like they can't get a gun. They're just going to buy the gun from somebody else. So we might as well sell them the gun. And they started selling guns back to drug dealers. When he told me that, shit just got real. It just raised things to a much higher level. I mean, these guys are selling guns back to drug dealers that I could get killed by one of these guns. Brown avoids the midnight crew. He focuses on doing the job. And by 1990, he works his way into the most elite detail in the 3-0, the anti-crime unit. They work in plain clothes, looking for crimes in progress. Brown's new partner is Officer George Nova, the cop he was with on Christmas morning when their sergeant ripped open the half kilo of coke. When I got to anti-crime, I was assigned to work with George, who I had known from the neighborhood. We grew up a couple blocks away, played briefly on the same Little League baseball team, and we had played sports with each other and against each other in the neighborhood. It's an ideal scenario for Brown. He's in the precinct's top unit, and he's known his partner for years. They even grew up on the same street, 157th. Plus, George Nova knows the neighborhood in a way that Brown doesn't. George knew everybody. He was like the mayor. Everybody knew him. He was the life of the party. He always had jokes. He was well-liked and respected in the neighborhood. He went to school with these people. He grew up in the neighborhood with these people. A lot of these people had just happened to also be alleged former drug dealers who had made a lot of money and went legitimate. I mean, this guy knew everybody. Tom Bird knew George Nova from the neighborhood, too. George was an athlete. He was a great kid, man, great dude. Even when he became a cop, he was, he was becoming a cop for a good reason. George used to catch murderers and rapists and all that. Even like we were talking about these maniacs from back in those days. George wasn't scared of them. You know what I mean? He'd go after you. kill somebody, kill a little kid, George will go find that motherfucker. I don't care. You missed your target and you hit a kid? Guess what? George is coming to find you. He was that type of cop. Bird spoke earlier about being stabbed nine times. Here's what happened afterwards. I jumped in a cab. The cab driver looked at me and finally realized I was bleeding to death. Went through the lights and went to the hospital. When I got up there, they had to give me an induced coma, collapsed lung and all that shit. But George Nova followed up on everything. George kept telling me, I got you. While I was in the hospital, George tracked them down for me. You know, he got arrested. I guess he did some time. George did everything for me. That was like our brother, man. While Barry Brown and George Nova look to stop crime as it's happening, Sly Francis, the undercover detective who was forced to sniff coke at gunpoint, takes a different approach. He develops informants to try to work his way toward catching the big-time drug dealers. I meet this Dominican guy. We got along once he found out I have a little Dominican background. 
he owns a barbershop. And he says to me, I got great information because all the dealers come into my barbershop. And they all talk about their business, how many kilos they bought. And they even talk about where they had the stuff stored at. I'm developing this guy as a CI, confidential informant. And he's given us some great information, which led to search warrants where we get some recoveries. So I'm working with this guy for about a little less than nine months. He disappears on me. Three months later, this guy gives me a call. I said, man, what happened to you? He says, he's up in Boston. I said, Boston? What are you doing up there? He says, I think I got burned by a couple of cops regarding the work I'm doing for you. And he says, I have a problem with some of the cops in the 3-0. I said, well, you having problems with the cops in the 3-0? He said, one particular guy named George Nova. He says, oh, slide, these cops are ripping off dealers and they selling this stuff. And George Nova is one of the big guys inside there. I meet up with him, with my sergeant, and we debrief him. And he's giving us information about drug dealers and 3-0 cops. He says his life is being threatened because they're saying that he's a rat, he's working with us. According to him, Nova came up to him personally and told him that he know he's a freaking rat. And then some of the dealer boys are pointing fingers at him saying, yo, you know what happens to rats? Sly contacts Internal Affairs, which is the NYPD's anti-corruption arm. Its sole purpose is to root out dirty cops. Anytime you debrief a CI and the CI is going to give you that type of information, you have to notify Internal Affairs and give them the exact same account that your CI gave you. Any names involved, officers involved, locations, all pertinent information in regards to the allocation being made. We gave that information. I remember reporting George Nova. So we gave Internal Affairs George Nova's name. I had heard rumors about George. I spoke to George about the rumors and he denied them. He said they weren't true. And once I started working with him and I got to know him better, I really started to like the guy. We were partners and there was a bond between us. I trusted George and George definitely trusted me. But as time went by, I started to think that he was keeping secrets. But he didn't know that I had an even bigger secret. Coming up this season on the set. How many crimes and acts of corruption do you estimate you committed as a New York City police officer? Hundreds. No institution, and you really can't blame the NYPD about this, wants its dirty laundry washed in public. There was a message that went out to uh, the field that uh, uh, maybe we shouldn't be so aggressive in fighting corruption. 
They saw their role as protecting the department, not rooting out corrupt cops. In New York City tonight, a major scandal for the nation's largest police force. It was a Banana Republic precinct operating in the city of New York. It was unbelievable. I'm just seeing it wasn't one guy. It wasn't two guys. It wasn't 10 guys. It seemed to be everybody. Was it a common practice to break into apartments which were suspected drug locations? Yes. Why would you break into these apartments? For drugs, whatever was in there. Weren't you ever afraid of getting caught at doing this? No. Who's going to catch us? We're the police. And on the next episode. I was warned from various people He's dirty, he's corrupt, don't trust him. Barry Brown begins to see the other side of his partner. I confronted him and I asked him, I said, hey, George, I've heard some stories, man. And George said he took the money and he panicked and put it in his pocket and he kept it. And we meet a new member of the 3-0 who gets thrown right into the deep water. I'm thinking, should I do it, should I not do it, should I do it, should I not do it? It's like the good angel, bad angel. And it's like, what the fuck am I going to do? The set is created, written, and directed by me, Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited by Perry Kroll and Alistair Sherman. Research by me and Ian Mont. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Original music by Joel Goodman. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales, and operations by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, and Danny Cutrick. With special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese Dennis, Tim Clark, Craig Cox, Callum Togus, Rob Morandi, and Eric Donnelly. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of The Set. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.